You're listening to the Law Careers Net podcast, a monthly podcast designed to give you everything you need to know about becoming a lawyer. Hello and welcome back to the Law Careers Net podcast, sponsored by the University of Law. In this episode, my colleague Liv sat down with Bridget Garud and Anna Casey Woodward, who are both lawyers and committee members of the Law Society's LGBT plus lawyers community. It's a fascinating conversation covering Bridget's and Anna's experiences of being queer in the law, how to be a better ally to LGBTQ plus colleagues, microaggressions, reforms that need to happen in the workplace, things like gendered language, support for trans and non-binary colleagues, and Bridget's work as a family lawyer for LGBTQ plus clients. Plus, Bridget and Anna share their advice for students looking to enter the profession. Over to Liv. We're very excited to have you both here with us today, Anna and Bridget, on the Law Careers Net podcast. I wondered whether you could both introduce yourself, so tell us a little bit about your journey into the profession and your role on the Law Society's LGBT plus Lawyers Division Committee. Sure. So my name's Anna. I use they, them pronouns. I am a tax lawyer working within the private client team of the Royal Twitter King, which is a sort of regional firm. I am part of the regional and student engagement team on the Law Society Committee. So I particularly focus on reaching out to students to talk about things like becoming a lawyer and being queer in law, but also um, more recently looking at focusing on areas, geographic areas where there isn't much representation and how we can expand our reach to help those areas. Hi, I'm Bridget Garud. I'm a solicitor qualified in 1994 and I've been on the Law Society LGBT plus Lawyers Division Committee since February 2017, which makes it just over five years. I use she, her pronouns and I work as a family law consultant solicitor in the city of Exeter and the southwest of England. And I have advised more LGBTQ plus families than I can remember, and also clients um, in families law situations which are emerging from straight marriages into other situations. So one of the things that I'm glad we're going to be covering today is, is talking about some of that work. As with all strands that fall under diversity, uh, in recent years, we've seen a huge drive within uh, law firms to improve their diversity and inclusion. We recently published an article on Law Quiznet about the history of LGBTQ plus in the legal profession and came across some stats that I thought would be useful to address. So Anna, in the Law Society's 2021 survey, Pride in the Law, 52% of respondents said that there was a lack of visible LGBTQ plus role models at work. What are your thoughts on this? I think it's interesting that so many of the respondents identified not having visible role models, considering how long lawyers have been looking at getting better representation and inclusion at work. I'm thinking um, to some of the experiences I know that Bridget's had during her career. I would think that there would be more people higher up in law firms that would be visible, proud role models. I think it probably speaks a lot to the culture of some firms where you might be a queer person who is not confident enough to be a role model. It's nice to know that some people are finding role models, but I think it might be indicative of of a continued culture of having to be more professional than personal in your work life. 
Brilliant, thank you. I think role models are so important for everyone, particularly underrepresented candidates um, and lawyers. And having role models in the workplace that represent you, I do think is crucial to good well-being and success. This next question I just want to pose to, to both of you, starting with you, Bridget. Uh, have you always felt confident to be yourself at work? No, I haven't. Indeed, at the time I was admitted as a solicitor um, at Chancery Lane, the Law Society Hall, I was very much in the closet to the point where my partner, my female partner didn't come to the ceremony my father took me to the ceremony he was also a solicitor and he was very proud of me but at that point I hadn't actually come out to my family let alone to my workplace so that is very strong in my in my memory I had just done my two years as an article clerk which is of course now called a training contract and I had formed this relationship partway through that and I qualified in the firm where I had I had done my articles um, and I wasn't able to be out in that firm. And in fact, I didn't feel able to come out professionally until I'd moved to a different firm where I already had a friend who knew me, knew my partner, knew my family, knew my stepchildren within my family, although of course we didn't get married in those days um, or have a civil partnership. So I felt then felt comfortable enough because people already knew my situation in that firm before I even arrived. And that made a, a huge difference. I think similarly to Bridget, when I started out, um, on my legal journey, I felt a huge requirement, probably unreasonably, to conform to what I thought a lawyer should be. And that included not expressing much of my queerness. And I ended up training in a firm where the use of slurs was quite common. It was quite common to hear partners not being particularly good allies, should we say. And that all then led further to just me uh, not being the person I am. I then moved to a firm, very interestingly, similar to what Bridget was saying, where actually one of the partners knew me personally and therefore knew about me as a person. And so moving into that role, it, which is my current role, I felt much more comfortable to just be authentic. And now actually I'm using my authenticity as a way of creating a culture of learning and understanding and sharing and celebrating queer identities in the hope that other people who come into the business and come into the firm don't feel what I felt and, and, and do feel like they can be them, their whole selves. Brilliant. Thank you both. I think that kind of hit the nail on the head with the, the importance of allies in the workplace there. And obviously a lot of, of the confidence comes from being in a respectful and inclusive environment as well. Bridget, microaggressions was an issue highlighted in the Law Society survey as well, um, with 53% of bisexual respondents reporting it as an issue, 35% of lesbian gay women and 26% of gay men. How can the legal profession educate its lawyers to prevent this negative behaviour? I think it's a case of much wider education than simply educating lawyers. Having the sort of research that we did last year, which has produced the Law Society report um, for called Pride in the Law, is, a, is an excellent starting point because it gives understanding of where lawyers are coming from, if you like, and the, the different experiences of the profession. But I'll just give you an example of why it's important to educate more widely than simply lawyers. I had a situation where I was introduced in the workplace as being in a same-sex relationship, which was fine. I think this introduction had been made before I started. And I had a member of staff who needed to understand that when we had client, new client inquiries, the telephone calls that she would take, that 
it wasn't going to be appropriate to assume that because somebody with a female voice was ringing the firm and talking about the breakdown of her relationship, that um, her partner would necessarily be a man. So I very gently tried to explain that, that, that this assumption wasn't going to be, be helpful and that lots of things were going to be read into that if somebody was ringing up and those assumptions were made. And the microaggression that then occurred was that when she did then take an inquiry, the first question might be, are you are you married or unmarried? The second question might be, so are you a lesbian? So there was this kind of, I wouldn't even say it, say it was microaggression. There was this kind of aggressive use of the training that she'd been given to, to undermine the message, because obviously that wouldn't be an appropriate question to ask someone. Yeah, those kind of microaggressions are still common, I think, in, in some cases where people are using their the training that they've had about diversity and inclusion and in this context specifically LGBTQ awareness training shall we say and then perhaps taking on board some of this messaging that we're hearing very unhelpfully in certain quarters in our government perhaps and administration that's coming out as a backlash for example people not wanting to appear to be woke for example and therefore kind of undermining some of this training that they've been given so I think it's it's not sufficient just to sort of give awareness training and, and hope that it, the message has landed, but actually kind of being aware that there are people that sort of are still actively undermining this kind of work that we're doing. And, and just drawing on that, often homophobic, biphobic and transphobic behaviour goes unreported. And this was brought up in the Pride in Law report as well. What can the profession be doing to tackle this issue internally in terms of encouraging people to, to speak up about these behaviours, whether that's allies or people going through it themselves? I think this really comes down to the culture of the firm and how on board allies are in supporting people who experience this kind of behaviour. The reason I say that is because I recently experienced this kind of behaviour at work, which was a client uh, read my pronouns and decided they didn't want to work with me anymore, which meant that all the work I'd done for them before, the professionalism, the advice was meaningless to them because of the pronouns I used. And in that instance, both HR and my manager very much took this on as a matter they needed to tackle and were very supportive of me and checked in with me and found out how I was, as well as taking steps to make sure that that client, it wasn't somebody we were going to work with. So for me, it was really demonstrative that even though these two people weren't members of the community, their allyship was strong enough and the culture of the firm was strong enough that I didn't have to report it. It was already dealt with before I even had to say anything because they became aware of it. So I think it needs to be part of the fabric of the firm that people are aware that members of the community can experience microaggressions, as Bridget was talking about, or sometimes just outright uh, you know, this was non-binary phobia and, and be active in tackling that. I, I fully agree with Anna that it's a matter of the culture of the firm. It's not good enough to kind of hope for the best that this stuff will will happen naturally because we live in more, more enlightened times um, than perhaps was the case back in the back in the early 90s when I first came into the profession. Actively and gently sometimes letting people know that you are, in my case, available to talk to the firm about my kind of experiences and history and what has made a difference to me and what's helpful and what isn't helpful so I think in my case being able to put myself out there 
has taken quite a lot of confidence that's been built up over the past, you know, nearly 30 years. The fact that things are still going unreported is no surprise because it does take a lot of courage. And you, as a lawyer, you're well aware that you will potentially be labelling yourself as a troublemaker if you do take it upon yourself to report things. I think, again, the importance of allyship can't be stressed enough because if allies take on board these issues and raise them and don't rely on the people with what I would call the protected characteristics using the Equality Act phrase and perhaps not putting all the pressure on the people with the protected characteristics who are experiencing the sort of things that we might we might want to report. You know, that, as far as I'm concerned, is high quality allyship. Allyship starts with educating yourself and finding your own understanding of the issues that other people around you in the workplace might face, but also sharing your own. So, it might not be a protected characteristic under the Equality Act, but, you know, you might, for example, have had an interesting social mobility journey that you can share with your colleagues. And that might in turn encourage them to share what they feel is something perhaps unusual about their own journey in, in our profession. And just to build on what Bridget was saying, I think one of the really important things about high quality allyship is it doesn't just happen when you're around. It happens when you're not around. So picking up on phobic behaviour and shutting it down when that person isn't even there or people aren't even there is really important. And Bridget mentioned social mobility, race, age, disability, all of those things are really important for us to be active in combating if we see them. Thank you for adding that. And I think allyship is obviously absolutely crucial for all diversity strands. And I think for aspiring lawyers, trying to identify firms and workspaces that have these cultures is quite tricky at the moment. What would your advice be in that sense? I get this question a lot. It's been asked of me a lot recently as well as to how do I best identify a firm that is genuinely promoting a workspace with strong allyship and strong representation versus people who are performative allies or even worse rainbow washing and just cashing in on appearing to be allies and the advice that I give to people is you have to test the boundaries of what people say and what people know when you go to an interview ask the questions find out what your interviewers know if the answers you get are very short or very shallow or even negative, then you know that what you're looking at isn't part of the culture of the firm. It is a few people. Ask questions about who's in the network. What do they do? Is it run by the queer community for the queer community? Do they point you in a direction of a HR manager to tell you more? You can find so much by just asking a few more questions and being slightly nosy. And if it's not genuine allyship, it'll crumble quite quickly. Moving on to our next question, introducing the option to include pronouns in email signatures, for example, is kind of a bare minimum that firms can be doing. Anna, what other actions can law firms take to create an inclusive profession for non-binary lawyers and clients? I would answer this, I think, primarily by picking up on something that Bridget was saying earlier, which was when she was talking about microaggressions. And I think we need to take away the linguistic assumptions that we express when we speak to somebody. So when you take an inquiry from the phone, you hear what you interpret to be a female voice and therefore you assign she, her pronouns to that person. If we stop doing that and start using gender neutral pronouns, you create a space for the client to inform you of their pronouns rather than you assume their pronoun, not assuming someone's family structure. And therefore, when someone mentions their partner saying, she or he, again, using they, them and saying gender neutral terms like spouse or partner, that sort of thing. I think linguistically, 
we expose quite a lot of the inherent bias that we hold and therefore using more gender neutral terms and also offering something of yourself to say these are my pronouns creates a space for people to customize their experience with you in such a way that they don't have to fight any of your assumptions you know they can tell you what's right for them straight off the bat really and now a short message from our podcast sponsor the university of law The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many courses to help students work and study at the same time. Find out more about studying at the University of Law with the link in the podcast description. There's obviously lots of things that firms could be doing um, more generally to create a more inclusive workspace. And the phrase action to speak louder than words resonates quite profoundly here. Firms sometimes often walk the walk, but obviously we need to see them actually putting things in place. Bridget, just to come back to you, you've listed the work you do for your LGBTQ plus clients as as one of your career highlights. Please, could you briefly outline the type of work uh, and the importance of this? Well, of course, this kind of work has changed hugely over the last 28, 30 years since since I came into the profession. Families have changed, but the problems that families face are still very familiar to those which were facing me when I was very junior in the profession. So people in same-sex relationships clearly do split up. And I have certainly advised many people in same-sex relationships who have separated. And of course, it wasn't until 2005 that people were able to enter a civil partnership under the Civil Partnership Act 2004. That wasn't even on the radar when I qualified 10 years earlier than that. But I had become known in my community and in the southwest of England, and my firm had become known as a place where LGBTQ people could expect a an appropriate welcome. And it was, certainly wasn't the case always that you could be sure of a welcome, let alone having the right kind of expertise in your family law solicitor and their staff. So the firm that I was partnering for 20 years in Exeter was a, was a high street firm. Um, it was away from the main part of the city of Exeter over the other side of the, the River X. In the early days, there would be a a sort of little rainbow sticker um, somewhere discreetly positioned and a few of the businesses down in that part of the city had those stickers which was kind of signaling you were considered yourself to be gay friendly but pre-internet of course there were LGBT networks and charities and helplines and CAB and people that could direct families and family members to a sympathetic service. So as part of that, I not only advised lesbian and gay clients, but also started to advise clients who were from our local gender clinic. So I also started to get inquiries from trans people and very much had to educate myself with their help. And I'm very grateful to them always as to the sort of legal problems that they were facing. And of course, this became more common once the Gender Recognition Act came into being also in 2004. So the sort of legal problems that we would be dealing with at that stage were trans people having their children taken away by social services. And this was a familiar situation to me in the sense that acting for lesbian parents had also caused issues in that, you know, there was a time when you were considered automatic 
automatically to be a bad mother if you had perhaps left your husband for another woman and there was a very strong chance that you would lose your children. So we would use quite creative structures under the Children Act once that came in. I was able to sort of transfer this creativity to my work with trans people. But, you know, one of one of my career highlights has been helping a number of trans people to obtain a gender recognition certificate. Because as we've seen in recent years, that can be a really distressing and difficult process. And to have an awareness that this isn't just an administrative matter of filling in a few forms, that there's a whole history, that there's a whole sensitivity that's required was something that I've been very proud of as, as part of my career, as well as having been involved in, you know, lobbying for and consulting on things like the Civil Partnership Bill before it was an act and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, some of the things that I advise on in my work as a family lawyer, um, which might be of particular interest to LGBTQ people, are cohabitation agreements, uh, civil partnership arrangements, talking about pension survivor rights, inheritance and wills, of course, which Anna uh, covers as well, parenting arrangements and agreements, fertility law, and of course, talking about the option whether to marry or enter a civil partnership, which until recently only same-sex couples had had those options. But of course, all the things that everybody needs to do, planning for incapacity, dementia, powers of attorney, and then the more specialised things like obtaining a gender recognition certificate, going along with that, things like change of name, change of passport and those kind of documents, um, changing gender markers on those, protection of confidentiality and data for, for trans people, in particular under the Gender Recognition Act, Section 22, um, which of course can change their birth certificate. And then particular things that are very specialised, like advising on the spousal veto under the Gender Recognition Act and the very specialist ways in which people can be discriminated against in terms of their pension rights, um, which is still a source of inequality for LGBTQ people. So sorry that was such a long list, but all of those things are things which uh, people might want specialist advice on from a specialist family lawyer. I think that the law in this area is is constantly evolving as well. And Anna, the um, I was wondering if you could explain the aim of guides, including the gender neutral drafting guide um, and the guide to transitioning at work. I think this is the start of a raft of documents which are designed to reflect the modern relationship that people, be they staff members or clients, have with gender. I think there's less adherence to a binary gender experience and therefore lawyers need to catch up in terms of drafting a lot of which in my area maybe more so than Bridget is very old because I deal with a lot of trusts and wills so not a lot of punctuation a lot of reference to one gender will include the other gender which obviously is not very inclusive so I think it's the idea that we actually just need to uplift and update the language that we use in order to accurately reflect the relationship that people are having with gender not only for from a client point of view but also from a staff member point of view certainly in terms of the guide to transitioning at work um, one of the things that Bridget mentioned is that uh, obtaining a GRC is quite an emotional difficult thing to do it's not just an administrative action and I think that guides transitioning at work is useful in helping employers to understand some of the things that someone who is transitioning is going through and appropriate ways to support them that are going to be practically helpful as well as education from an employer's point of view. 
And I think that we've we've touched on this a little bit as well, looking at the actions firms can be taken to improve diversity and inclusion in this area. But looking forward, I wondered how, if you have any ideas on how colleagues can be better LGBTQ plus allies. I think we've touched on this briefly. In terms of colleagues being better allies in the workplace, I think one of the key things is not assuming someone's pronouns based on the way they look, the way they sound, the way you interact with them. And moving forward, don't always expect someone's pronouns to be the same as well. People's gender expression can be diverse over their lifetime. And somebody who presents to you one way may in a few years present to you in another way. Not making assumptions about family structures is important as well. And being open and uh, visible, I think, as an ally is important as well. So we talked earlier about not just being an ally when the person's around, being an ally when the person's not around is probably more useful. I would rather have colleagues backing me up when I'm not there to fight for myself than necessarily stepping in when I need to represent for myself. And Bridget, wondering if you could talk a bit about the impact that the 2005 career experiences of gay and lesbian solicitors research study had on the profession? Yes, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. I was actually one of, I think, about 10 solicitors who were studied for this for this piece of research by the Law Society. And if anyone wants to look it up, it's Research Study 53 of the Law Society called Career Ex- Experiences of Gay and Lesbian Solicitors. The recommendations which were made in that report were very interesting because looking back on them now, we can see whether the Law Society has actually done any of these recommendations, some of which have happened and and some of which haven't for reasons which may simply be that they're not needed anymore. One of them was to provide a confidential helpline for gay and lesbian solicitors, obviously on the basis that there was considered to be a need for gay and lesbians. I'm I'm limiting it to gay and lesbian solicitors because that's what that report was about. So there was an acknowledgement that that there were, I think, the people that were studied, that there that there was a need for something like that because people couldn't necessarily be out, out and proud in their firms. To set up or endorse a law society group for gay and lesbian solicitors, well, 10 years later, the law society did start the LGBT plus lawyers division, um, which I think we're changing the name to the community rather than division. But that was something that wasn't asked of any of the questions by the researchers when that was something that many of us who were who were studied for that report suggested. So I'm very happy to say that one of the impacts of this research was that eventually, many years later, such a group was formed. The Law Society already had um, communities available for s- support and messaging for lawyers with various other different kinds of common uh, characteristics, if you like, but there was nothing specifically for LGBT plus lawyers. So that was, I think, a direct effect of the research, although it took a long time to get there. Very soon after the LGBT plus lawyers division was created, and again, this is something that the division was then able to fight for, we managed to have a seat on the Law Society Council allocated to the LGBT plus lawyers division, which was felt like a great achievement and certainly wasn't envisaged in the in the Chittenden report. One of the recommendations that was that um, the Law Society could possibly host a stall at a gay pride. So actually, where we then ended up many years later was the Law Society joining together with the bar lesbian and lesbian and gay group, with the legal executive, Silex, and with various 
I won't, won't list them all, but but happily, they're all listed on the back of the legal pride T-shirts that we're able to wear at pride events all over the country. And this was a way to enable lawyers whose firms didn't have a presence at Pride to come together and walk together and, and to make new networks. So, you know, one of my happiest memories of the work for, that I've done with this, the Law Society Committee, is attending Pride in Birmingham, joining the SRA, who had a, a big kind of bus at Birmingham Pride, and meeting for the first time uh, I, Stephanie Boyce, who's now, of course, the Law Society president. I've got some fantastic photographs of, of Stephanie kind of surveying Birmingham Pride from the top of the bus, surrounded by trans flags and various Pride paraphernalia. They're just kind of wonderful moments to sort of savor and hold on to personally as well as as well as professionally so from having the ambition of hosting a little stall at a gay pride to to have to have reached that place in our profession and to to have you know a president who's an active ally of us is obviously wonderful brilliant so i think that it's it's clear to say that the work is ongoing there's still lots to do but it's good to see that there is some positive change as well Anna in your law society bio you highlight your passion for LGBTQ plus representation and firms moving towards genuine belief in the benefits of diversity and away from tokenism and performative allyship what do you want to see from the legal profession say in the next five years five years is a long time and I think what we are looking at you know certainly when I sort of look forward and what do I think we're going to tackle in the next five to ten years I'm looking at wider acceptance understanding and knowledge about the trans community and the non-binary community because I see the fruits of what people have done in the 80s and 90s in terms of getting acceptance for gay and lesbian lawyers and I think we're now starting on a very similar journey for the trans and non-binary community so I think in the next five years it would be nice to see firms doing away with we talked about gendered language wide use of introducing yourself with your name and your pronouns as well as I think an overall awareness to something that is quite hidden and probably isn't talked about very much which is biphobia. I think as a as a profession and generally speaking as a society, we need to be a bit more honest about how rampant biphobia is in the profession and, and start tackling that as well. And just to close, so Bridget, if we start with you and then come to Anna afterwards, what would your advice be for LGBTQ plus aspiring lawyers considering a career in law? Again, I get asked this question quite a lot at student-led events that I attend or events where students are in the audience. I always say the same thing, which is don't think of yourself as a lawyer, as an LGBTQ lawyer, as somebody that needs to be accepted, tolerated, or even considered that the best you can expect is to be equal. Be really, really proud of yourself. Be really, really proud of your place, if you like, in the LGBTQ history of our profession, because you you have overcome some barriers. You will overcome more barriers. You will overcome barriers for your clients. That is what a lawyer does. Whatever branch of the profession that you're in, whether you're drafting whether you are taking, you know, human rights cases, whether you're going to be advising Ukrainian refugees who are clearly going to be in huge need of legal support, the ones that end up in this country. Whatever it is that you're doing, you will be helping and supporting your clients to overcome obstacles. So the fact that you have overcome obstacles to become a lawyer and that you will continue to do so throughout your career 
is the absolute asset that employers should be fighting over themselves to have you in their firm and should be proud of you and should be celebrating you and hold on to that. I obviously, I think Bridget, what Bridget said was wonderful and very inspirational. I would, I tend to pass on when people ask this question because I get asked this a lot. Advice that I was given, I reached out to two trans women at an event and I said, I feel really powerless. There's so much I want to do and so much I want to achieve in increasing my firm's EDI offering, but I just never feel like I get anywhere. And they both said to me, do it first and ask forgiveness later. And I really, that's what I would pass on to people say, make the world the way you want it to be. And firms will, in time, it might take a little bit of time, recognize the inherent value of what you've done and congratulate you for it. Thank you so much to Bridget and Anna for their time. It was great to hear all about their ideas and experiences, and I'm sure our listeners will have taken away a lot. If you are interested in finding out more, whether you are in the LGBTQ community or an ally, there are lots of resources that will be linked in the podcast description, as well as the full-length written article, which will be on Law Careers Net. So look out for details on how to join the Law Society LGBT plus lawyers community, as well as some resources on allyship to trans and non-binary colleagues and documents and resources for law firms on topics such as pronoun policies and transition and gender expression. Finally, the LGBT plus lawyers podcast is available on Spotify and there are 32 episodes out currently covering topics such as LGBT plus calendar events, for example, Trans Day Remembrance, and specialist LGBT plus legal topics like gender recognition, conversion therapy and landmark cases. So do check that podcast out. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.